He once was young, and he bloomed in youth, as many in the present day. Yet he saw recorded in the truth that heaven and earth must pass away. He sought a place, he sought a resting place, a place beyond this veil of tears, where he might see his father's face, where he might soothe his present fears. He called aloud with tears of joy to know who joined his company to seek a resting place above, which lasts through all eternity. Few here and there would join his band while passing through this wilderness, while Satan fight him hand to hand to drive him back in sad distress. Though troubles here and trials there assailed him as they passed along, yet he would cry without despair, Sinner, come and join our throng. He often crossed the mountain high, often journeyed prairies through, to warn the flock of dangers nigh and tell them of what they ought to do. He nobly fought to win the prize that he might gain the mercy seat, but lo, he fell no more to rise or stand on his mortal feet. While others died upon the bed with sighing friends to weep around, he in the distant grove lay down on naught but leaves and stone and ground. A sudden blow took a life and sense while passing through that lonely grove, yet none could tell from whom nor went, but he who lives in heaven above. My loss is great, I felt with pain, to know on earth we meet no more, yet hope my loss will be his gain when he shall walk that happy shore. Thank you, Brother Bruce. I'll let you know as we're coming to this later, that was a poem or a song written by a friend of John Klein named Jay Sanger after learning of his friend's death. Our scripture today is the parable of the Good Samaritan, which comes in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. You're reading in your pew Bible, it's page 735. I get to really push my contacts to their limits today. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? Sometimes you realize it's up here. He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes and they beat him. Oh, and they went, oh, yeah, they beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. 
a priest happened to be going down that same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw them, he took pity on him. And he went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he took the man on his own donkey and took care, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after, uh, look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell to the hands of the robber? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Blessed is the word of God. Amen. Benjamin Funk wrote a book in the year 1900 based on the diaries of John Klein, titled The Life and Later Labors of Elder John Klein, the Martyr Missionary. While skimming through it in preparation for today, I came across a conversation that had been recorded by Klein between himself and his friend John um, George Hoke who, after a little bit of research, was one of those people I probably should have recognized the name of, as he was an 11-time moderator of the annual meeting, which seems like a lot. <laughs> that was what we had before annual conference. He was also, at least for a fairly long time, a member at the Ashland Dickey Church, and this conversation probably happened in that area. I do know it was in the year, it was in September 20th. And Klein was on his way to that year's annual meeting that he was moderating in Iowa. The two men sat around the fire as the evening was cold and damp. When Klein lifted up a question that he had been struggling with, he turned to Hoke and said, Why? Do we not ordain deacons the same way that the seven were ordained at Jerusalem? Hoke responded, do you think the seven were deacons? Well, yes, I have always thought so. I do not think they were. Well, here is a difference of opinion between brethren. Hoke continued, let us try to get to the point together. And Klein responded, I desire above all things to know the truth, to see eye to eye with the brethren on every point of the holy writ. And then Hoke launched into his argument. So do I. Now let us see. I do not see the seven as deacons, because they are nowhere called deacons. Have we the right to call them deacons when the word does not recognize them as so? Again, I must think that the church at Jerusalem was fully organized before the demand was found for the appointment of the seven. Did it not have deacons at the start? 
Who attended to the gathering of food and hunting shelter? Who made provisions for the comfortable entertainment of thousands of brothers and sisters and children? Rather, I think the deacons were already in office attending these things. But the number of brethren increased so rapidly that the deacons needed help of general oversight. The most natural thing in the world would be to apply to the apostles in regard of this matter. But the apostles replied, it is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve the tables. This proves they had not done so before, and it would not be right for them to do so now. Hence the importance of getting, and it's going to go on and on for a bit. I'm cutting about three, two-thirds off of this argument. As he came to an end, Klein responded, I must admit, Brother George, that your argument is fair and pointed. I will reconsider the whole subject. I never saw the office and appointment of the seven in the light in which you have presented it to me this evening. Hoke then said, I believe there are points in addition to those already given, but you may have to find them yourself. Now, the reason I pull out this kind of wonky conversation, which frankly, I don't think any of you here probably care whether we install our deacons in the way that the original seven were called, because it shows something about Klein, about characters of himself, his characteristics, the kind of man he was. First off, Klein lived in an age of argument. There was the big argument happening around him, among those they would have called the English. You know, anyone who wasn't Pennsylvania German. They were arguing over slavery. The North and the South were fighting. This is only a little bit before the time we refer to as bloody Kansas. The brethren were arguing among the other, other Pennsylvania Germans, too. They and the Mennonites were writing letters and tracts and books about what their belief was and why the other ones were wrong. Klein himself even wrote a pamphlet in which he argued uh, the importance of having triune full immersion baptism, the way we do it today, because you know obviously it's the right way, Mennonites. This is a serious large argument happening between the two groups. But even the brethren weren't all together on the same page. They were having their own fights. They were fighting over things like millennialism, the idea that the end was about to come and that they could pick a date. They were arguing about who and how the bread was to be broken at a service or how feet were to be washed. People were not seeing eye to eye on anything. It didn't matter if you're dealing with things on a national level or things happening in individual households. People were not agreeing. Klein strove to find consensus in a time of discord. He set himself for a goal that, frankly, he couldn't be reached. 
I mean, not that any of us know what it's like to live in an era in which people disagree over things vehemently, right? John Klein was an idealist. John Klein also considered his friend's opinions, his arguments, and upon conclusion, notice Klein does not jump in with all of his counter-arguments that he had been considering while his friend talked. He isn't thinking about what he's going to say. He isn't worried about whether his beliefs are being poked at. He isn't concerned that he should go to bed soon because it's been a long day on the back of Nell. He sits there quietly. He takes in and considers every word his friend says. He remembers it well enough that at some point later, he sits down with his diary and he records the conversation. John Klein was a listener. And related to being a listener, John Klein is open to hearing evidence offered by others, even evidence that he didn't necessarily agree with at the beginning. He tests it. He weighs it against his knowledge and reading of the Bible, with his knowledge and understanding of how the world works. And if it's based in good, solid fact, if he can come to the same conclusions based on the same evidence, Klein is willing to change his assumptions. He is happy to change his opinions. He's happy to test his assumptions. John Klein was a scientist. It's these traits, among many, that led John Klein to this fireside chat and would carry him on into his untimely death, a life that had been shaped by humbleness, heartache, and hope. Now, he was born in 1797 in Dauphin County. I couldn't find out exactly where I was interested, but his mom was a Hershey, so I have some ideas. But he's really spent most of his life in the Shenandoah Valley in Rockingham County. There, he and his wife, Anna Wampler, farmed and were active in the Linville congregation. But their initial trajectory was changed. His life changed when they lost their first and only daughter, who was born still. I can only speak from my own experience because Klein never really wrote about this. But you can see after that, he becomes increasingly active in his church. He becomes increasingly active in new things, I'm guessing working through grief. He and his wife never had another child. Klein found himself more involved in that congregation, even donating and helping build a meeting house. To this day, the Linville Church of the Brethren continues to meet in a more modern version. They also opened their homes to boys in need, offering them a place to live, food to eat, and a future by training them as apprentices. Klein was called out into the ministry. He found his call in his voice. He was a preaching man, but he was also, as I said, a listening man and an idealist. And that ability, those abilities, those traits served him well. 
And soon he found himself traveling from meeting house to meeting house, preaching and teaching. He would write, as, as I said before, he was called out by the brethren to write in their defense. It's called apologetics. Klein became that brother and man that everyone knew. Kind of think of the way it was being, you know, how everyone here I know knows who Tom Zerker is in our community here. You probably have an idea of people like Andy Murray or Paul Munday. We all know that person. John Klein was that person in his day. But it wasn't enough. It wasn't that he desired more, but he desired to feel that he was doing what he was called to. And as he was walking around, well, riding around, caring for the souls of people, preaching and teaching, and while he was caring for their hearts, forming deep friendships, and offering hand of support in moments of tragedy and in pain, he also saw that their physical health was not being cared for. And he wanted to fix that. He wanted to help them. So he sought out Dr. Samuel Thompson of Vermont. Remember, this is an era where you could sit down in one chair and one person would handle giving you your haircut, your tooth pulled, and your blood let. This is an era where the idea of calling someone a snake oil salesman was just a title. It wasn't a commentary on what they were doing. Medical science as we now know it was still early in its development. And at this time, it was far more focused on these new fields of chemistry and surgery than they were on a lot of other things. Thomas was a little different. He looked to the old ways, the ways of the old wise men and wise women. He consulted herbalists, botanists, and created a new system of medicine based on the use of plants and then popularized it. We still have bits and pieces of it today. We call it uh, alternative medicine. But it also helped form a bridge between some of that ancient knowledge of things like aspirin naturally occurring in the world to how we now can make it ourselves. Klein appreciated what Thompson taught. He saw value in medicine that came from God's creation. And he became a student. And Klein was now not only visiting people to give them spiritual help, but offer physical healing as well. He continued to experiment. He continued to learn. He was always the scientist figuring out a better way to do something and learning from others and testing it out. He would even go as far as scheduling his, appoint his speaking engagements so that he was in certain areas at certain times when herbs were ready to be harvested. I'd like to point out one last trait. John Klein was a problem solver. And boy, were the problems in his life getting bigger. Not far from his home, at a little place on the river called Harper's Ferry, on the border of uh, Virginia and Maryland, John Brown led a group of men 
to invade and capture a military armory early on October 16, 1859. He, he had hoped to spark a slave insurrection, but instead he was besieged and later captured by then U.S. Army Colonel Robert E. Lee. He was tried and executed. And this started a cascading series of events that eventually led to South Carolina seceding with the hope of preserving slavery and then firing on Fort Sumter. And thus began the U.S. Civil War. Last week, we explored Christoph Sauer, who lived in a period of the Revolution. Again, there was a strain of war happening around them each side insisting on them giving the brethren, giving them their loyalty. But in this case, while brethren resisted during the revolution, saying, I am pro-patriot or pro-loyalist, but still had their own emotions about it, the brethren were pretty much on one side from the beginning. I mean, since their earliest days, they had always forbidden members to own other people. When the Quakers abolished, worked on abolished slavery in Pennsylvania, the Brethren and the Mennonites were right there beside them, giving them support from behind. And as they spread out, moving into what we now call the slave states like Virginia, they insisted on any new members who joined free their slaves. But now there is a large gathering of brethren all through the Shenandoah Valley. And Virginia wanted to conscript them. They tried to force them to act and they forced to act and support a cause that they vehemently disliked. But Klein was a problem solver. By this point, between his travelings and his healings, he had been elected the moderator of the church. And so he took it upon himself to make sure he could protect them the best they could. So he petitioned, he talked, he begged people in the north and in the south so that he could win protections for his brothers and sisters. Even while the fighting was going on around him, he was always astride his faithful mare, Nell. The story goes that he put over 30,000 miles on her back. That's one tough horse. I say that as someone's never had a horse, but 30,000's a lot. He would be arrested again and again by both armies and by civil authorities on both sides. But he continued to work. He made sure the brethren weren't forced to fight. He would also use his skill as a doctor to treat whoever came to him. And it didn't matter that whether they wore the black and white of the Pennsylvania Dutch or if they wore gray or blue. His work didn't go unnoticed. And he was given the rare gift of passes by both armies so that he could go through the lines whenever he wanted. But as 1864 came around, a new general was now fighting on the east named U.S. Grant. 
And while other generals before him had been okay with a hit and then retreat strategy, Grant preferred what he called the hammer strategy, where it didn't matter whether he won or he lose, lost. He always went forward. And so now Virginia especially was back on its heels being pounded by Grant. And the militia decided to take out their frustration on this old brethren man who they saw passing between the lines, someone they considered a traitor, someone they considered a spy. And on June 15th, 1864, Klein was walking, was riding home from a friend's house. He had gone there to fix her clock for her. And they ambushed him and they shot him off of Nell in the Lonely Grove. I struggled a long time trying to figure out a scripture to go with Klein. I struggled a long time to even write about Klein. I will tell you that by the time I wrote my actual introduction, I had already written half a sermon's worth of writing of all introductions. Because we can't really underestimate the power this man had in his day, the power his death had. The Mennonites, the spiritual cousins of the brethren, have a book called The Martyr's Mirror, which is full of people who died in the line of their faith. But Klein is the only brethren man up to that day. Well, he wasn't the only. He was the first major one. There were other martyrs. And with his death, it cemented our church. It cemented our ideals together. The man who rode all over the north and the south, providing healing, providing ministry, and was killed for it. Who is my neighbor? That's what I heard when I was trying to come up with this. And Klein answered that. My neighbor is whoever I encounter on the road. Whether they're wearing the gray or the blue, the black and white, or no color at all. Klein was a unique individual. But at the same time, he was every man every woman. He was someone born of humble means, someone who just did what he wanted to do. He wasn't like he received the best education. It wasn't like he was born of some illustrious line. He was just a man who farmed, a man who supported his church, a man called out to preach, a man who just found his knack and kept preaching, a man who just answered the problems as they were laid at his feet. Greatness sometimes just happens. It's not by accident, but not by design. It happens because we are just living the lives we're called to. How many of us today would know what the word Samaritan meant? When we are told the story, the only thing we know is it's the Samaritan. 
a person who's descended from the same line as the Jews, but went down a different path. Just a random guy now with his donkey. Sees a problem and fixes it. And now we name hospitals after him. Now we name entire movements after him. Now we have a series of laws named after him. What do we take from Klein's story? It's the same thing we take from the Samaritan's story. It isn't about where you come from. It isn't about where you're going. It's about doing the work as you come to it. Be like John Klein. Just figure the problem out. And when you don't, you ask someone for help. As the story of the brethren continue, from Alexander Mack, who decided to walk out and try something new, to Christoph Sauer, who loses everything for staying tried and true, we encounter John Klein, who just lives the life, not trying to make waves, just trying to do what's right. Isn't that what we're all called to do? To just do what's right as best we can. Thank you. On the screen. Speak to all the world of the child by whose word the universe is held together. We Whom shall I send, God asks us. Who will go? If those whom God has shown love have no words, who can tell the world that God's reign is among us? Show us how to bring your presence to others. Free our hearts, our hands, our voices to confess Christ, to give people the reason for hope that is in us. Glory be to you, Lord Jesus Christ. You took the form of a servant, you preached peace. You healed the oppressed, you died for us. We will tell the world that you are the author of our salvation. Here we are, send us, and all men.